Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God again. And... uh, and all the lies about the kingdom of God and all the truths about the kingdom of God. And what are you going to use to determine the truth about the kingdom of God? Are you going to use your mind? Are you going to use your intellect to calculate out the truth about the kingdom of God? Well, of course, that would be eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You would be deciding with your own mind about what God is, what His kingdom is, what His will is. And the idea that you can read the Bible, read uh, philosophies, theologies, ideologies, and with your own mind figure out what is good and what is evil is the sin that got us into trouble to begin with. (laughs) We began to think that we could figure this out with our own minds. Well, if we're not going to figure it out with our own minds, what are we going to use? Are you you supposed to listen to me? Are you supposed to listen to other people? I mean, you're listening to me right now. What, What Am I influencing your thinking? Or is there something else that is supposed to be influencing your thinking? Certainly, there are lots of things that influence your thinking, influence your mind, influence your perception of what is true. And it should be the hand of God to tell you about God and who God is and what God wants and what God says is good and what God says is evil. Now, again, we've talked about what is evil. What is evil is the absence of God. It is, I mean, God, if God is light and evil is darkness, then evil is the absence of good. It's the absence of the good that God says is good. And that absence we call evil, darkness. It's what comes about when God is not really the source of your understanding of good and evil. When you're the source, you're probably going to be wrong. When you're the source, you are going to be influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We just had a school shooting down in uh, Florida. And uh, even though the, the show will probably be timely, uh, uh, timeless because of the fact that there's been school shootings in Florida before. There's been school shootings in Colorado. There's been school shootings in Oregon. There's been school shooting. There's all these school shootings. Well, actually, sometimes there's mall shootings, but almost all shootings are in gun-free zones. And, you know, I'm actually reminded of an old Abbott Costello movie where Boris Karloff was trying to hypnotize Costello and uh, get him to commit suicide. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a line in it, something like, uh, 
amazing. Even the mind of an idiot <laughs> could not force him to commit suicide. He would resist committing suicide. And uh, so the reality is, is that there's still hope inside of the people who go out there and try to murder other people and then kill themselves. And they know it. And so they don't go to the rifle range to kill people. They go to gun-free zones. But what's really driving them to go to those zones? And of course, uh, it's not the fact that they own guns. People have owned guns for uh, actually hundreds of years. And we don't have a lot of these go-to-schools and shoot-up people. As a matter of fact, they used to have rifle range at this local school. And kids would bring guns to school on the school bus, rifles, on the school bus to school and nobody shot up anybody. <laughs> so, but something's changed and actually a lot of things have changed. Um, the way in which our families are held together, the way in which our communities are held together, the, the way in which we think that we are having a social relationship on Facebook or the media or texting. Or Instagram. I don't even know these things. I I don't go on those things. But people have this virtual fellowship in cyber world. And uh, they actually are, you know, they, there's been studies and people are looking at the, the process of, you know, when somebody, you make a post and somebody likes your post or somebody responds to your text, you get a little endorphin reward like a little biscuit that you would give your dog because you know he did what you told him and you train a dog to do that well you're being trained to do that too to look in particular directions for satisfaction for comfort for a feeling of belonging or a feeling of success or a feeling of um, support and you're looking to these electronic media to push those buttons and you're becoming addicted to those electronic medias. That's the world's influence on you. But there's also the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the, actually, the truth is the world has, because of electronic media, and and there's been other ways in which this has been done in the past, but electronic media, your flesh is a part of that reward system that you're getting when your friends all like what you posted and respond to your action. You say something, you get a response, a positive response, a thumbs up. And your body secretes a chemical that gives you a feeling of satisfaction and reward. And we've talked about a lot of these mental issues, uh, capgras and stuff like that, where you damage a part of your mind so that you don't get those signals anymore. And you think something is wrong. Your ma- your mind literally manufactures a scenario that is not in reality, or at least not completely in reality. And you it alters your whole life. And everything that you do has that kind of tremendous influence. You know, we gave the example of the fellow who was injured in a motorcycle accident and he believed that his parents, when he saw them, looked like his parents but were not his parents. Another woman who had a fever and uh, she believed that her husband was not her husband, that it was somebody else. A, a boy who received a overdose of uh, amphetamines 
because of a car accident, they wanted to make him immobile, and the EMTs gave him too high a dose of uh, the drug to keep him immobile. They, I mean, they did it with a, because they believed that maybe his back was injured, and they didn't want him thrashing around, and so they uh, sedated him with amphetamines. And when he woke up, he not only didn't believe that his parents were really his parents, his uh, brother was not really his brother, uh, but he actually believed that the hospital was not really a hospital and that these were all made-up things. To, and he was kidnapped and they had to put a guard on him 24 hours a day because he kept trying to escape the hospital because he felt he was imprisoned there in some sort of, you know, mind-altering thing. <laughs> so... But all this was because simply connections were interrupted in his brain. Eventually, he overcame them, but they were interrupted because of this overdose of amphetamines. And well, now people are prescribing amphetamines to children and uh, saying that it's helping them. And yet, almost all these school shootings involve uh, kids on psychotropic drugs uh, prescribed by doctors. Suicides. Are up. Uh, the suicides, more military men die from suicide than from the enemy in the last few years. They're, they're killing themselves more than the enemy is killing them. So who is the enemy? What What is going on? I'll lay you odds. I don't have statistics on this, but following the statistics that are available on school shootings and these, these mass shootings uh, where people shoot up other people, kill their families, and then kill themselves. Almost all of them, and maybe all of them, they they close the record so it's hard to see, are result from taking psychotropic drugs prescribed by doctors. Uh, they're all involved, those psychotropic drugs, because they're affecting the mind. And of course, you're affecting your mind by what you watch, by what you do, by what you hear and what you accept, you know. And I wrote to to in a discussion with the ministers group. I pointed out that lies behind labels. We have labels. Are you a Christian? And so now you you have the Christian label. You can put that little Christian label, like the 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 uh, military officers have these bars on their jacket. And this means that they were in Vietnam, and this means they were in Korea, and this means that they were in the European uh, uh, theater, you know, during the war. They were in this battle and that battle. And then they have other medals that say they were wounded and that they they got the Congressional Medal of Honor. And they have all these different medals that tell you their history. And those are labels to identify where they're from, what outfit they're from, where they served. And... Uh, and you can, if you know how to read that, you can look at that and say, oh, yeah, well, that guy was there. Oh, you were there. I was there. And uh, and then you have these commonalities because he's all labeled. And if they put stuff on there that isn't true, that's a court martial offense. You could get into a lot of trouble. But we live by these labels. You know, like people say, are you a doctor? Like somehow all doctors agree. <laughs> That if a, if a doctor says it's true, well that cannot be because doctors don't agree. <laughs> this doctor will say one thing, this doctor will say another. So you can't believe that something is true because of the doctor. And, and the whole statement I said, lies hide behind labels and sinners hide 
under white garments. And then I got to thinking this morning when I read that again, who wears white garments? Well, of course, I was referring originally to white sepulchers, referring to the quote from Jesus Christ, talking about the Pharisees who dress all nice with these white garments, linen, because the Levites were to wear linen, and they were full of dead men's bones. They were liars. They were deceivers. And some were deceivers because they themselves were deceived. The best liars are people who have been deceived to believe what they are saying is true. If you gave them a lass, they would, they would, they would come out as telling you the truth. Is he telling the truth about God? Yeah, it says he's telling the truth. Why? Because he believes he is telling you the truth. Not because it's the truth. Because he believes he is telling the truth. He actually thinks what he is saying is true. But it's not. Now you go out to, uh, somebody was talking to me last night or yesterday afternoon about somebody they like to listen to on the radio. Or I guess they watch them on TV. I guess he's a kind of a TV evangelist. They're all repeat programs, but they watch them because they give them a feeling of comfort. And I wanted to see, and I can't remember his name. We're going to maybe try to find out what his name was later, and I'm going to take a look. Just because I'm curious, why do they find him so comforting? What is this preacher saying that finds him so comforting? How, how, how is that affecting? How is their mind working? Because, personally, I'm prejudiced, but I don't believe that he's probably telling them the truth. He may tell them some truths, but he isn't really telling them the truth about the kingdom of God. Because, you know, when Jesus went and told all the people the truth about the kingdom of God, it drove most people away. They found him uncomfortable. I mean, even the loaves and fishes, uh, when he had 5,000 people sit down in groups of 10 and ranks of 50 and ranks of 100, some of those people were going to reject Christ later on. Even his own apostles, when he was arrested, suddenly lost their courage and were afraid. So, what what is going on in the minds of people that find this miracle worker Christ who preaches love and charity so objectionable, so uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, obviously the Pharisees and the money changers hated him because he was a threat to their power and position. Especially when he was hailed by thousands of people as the rightful king of Judea. There was no king sitting on the throne in Judea at the time of Jesus Christ. There was no king sitting there. Uh, Herod Antipas was over in in another part of the kingdom. The kingdom had been divided into three parts. Philip was in one. Herod Antipas was in another. But nobody sat on the throne as the rightful king of Judea. And nobody else really would when, when another Herod took that claim. His belly immediately ruptured open <laughs> and worms came out because... Uh, he had sinned against God and man by his own words. Why? Because Jesus was on that throne. And all those who rejected Jesus rejected Judaism, rejected Moses, because Moses and Jesus were in agreement. 
the kingdom of God had been taken away from the Pharisees when they said, we have no king but Caesar. Out of their own mouths, they convicted themselves. And Jesus had told us about that, you know, that it's what comes out of your mouth that condemns you. You know, and of course, what came out of their mouth is that they were rejecting the rightful king of Judea, a government in the world, but not of the world of Rome, and appointed to the apostles, and not no longer in the hands of the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and Ananias, and Caiaphas. It was no longer in their hands. They were a Roman uh, satellite state. The true kingdom of God, the true government of Judea, the remnant of Israel, was the church. And now, Levites who had gone the ways of the Hasmoneans, which were not the ways of Moses, were repenting and joining the church as ministers of the church, not to do away with the laws that Moses gave us, that came down from the mountain, but to return to what they really mean. To go back to the ways of God that Moses tried to teach the people, but no, they wanted things like divorce, and they wanted laws that gave them vengeance. Now, he had food laws, which we call statutes, where he was trying to use statutes. This is what statutes originally were for, even in our modern governmental system, was define what we know to be law. You you should not poison yourself. You should not poison your children. We know that. That's That's basic in the law of nature. But what is poisoning our children? So that he had to make food laws up. Like, well, don't eat crustaceans and, and filter kind of fish that live on the bottom and eat the toxins and poisons that might be at the bottom of the sea or the bottom of rivers. Uh, don't, don't eat those things because you'll be putting toxins in your body. Uh, and while we're at it, don't eat pork because the pork is infested with parasites uh, if you go to Canaan, you will see people that are debilitated at the age of 35 because their body is full of parasites that they got from the pigs. Yeah, and uh, it will destroy you. And by the way, while you're at it, put a little uh, spoon-like digging implement on the handle of your sword so you can bury your latrine so that people aren't walking around in that stuff and and picking up parasites that are passing from pigs to people and people to people and and then also before you eat and handle food wash your hands he's making up just common sense rules they're all based on the idea that you shouldn't kill your children you shouldn't kill your neighbor and you do that when you when you bring infested contaminated foods into your kitchen, into the place where you prepare foods. So he he's trying to tell you how not to kill each other. You know, if you dig a pit, put a put a rope around it, put put you know uh, colored tape around it so that people don't uh, fall into the pit. If you if you put a balcony up there, make sure there's a good railing so that you don't create a hazard that might cause the death of your neighbor. If your bull has a tendency to push people 
you know, gore people, charge people. Uh, you're going to have to lock that bull up and keep him away from people or you're going to have to butcher that bull because he is a menace to your neighbor. He's just, all he's doing is expounding upon what it means to thou shalt not kill. And the food laws, thou shalt not adulterate your body. You should not adulterate your marriage. You shouldn't, because you can pass diseases on that way. Uh, gonorrhea was a problem in those days. Syphilis would become a problem when we picked it up from the American Indians who were doing, uh, or promiscuous as well. Some of them were promiscuous as well and had spread these venereal diseases. And nowadays we have all kinds of diseases and they're saying, no, don't adulterate your body with these diseases because you will pass them on and kill your spouse and maybe kill your children. You wouldn't have, if you were adhering to that basic law, don't adulterate your marriage, don't adulterate yourself, AIDS wouldn't be a problem. But it is a problem because people are not keeping those basic commandments, which really are all summed up in two commandments, to love God and love thy neighbor as thyself. And if you were doing those two commandments, all the other ten would just fall into place. And all the statutes of Moses, once you were a little educated on things like parasites and and uh, and what's good for your health, you would not eat them. You know, there are other things you should not be eating. You know, I was with somebody who's all worried about the radiation from Fukushima poisoning fish, so he won't eat any fish out of the Pacific Ocean. Because they may be contaminated with radiation. He wants to buy a Geiger counter to determine whether the food he buys has radiation in it. I was with him in a store. He was buying box soup mix. You know, like uh, Lipton's box soup mix. And what was the other one that was there? Uh, uh, cup of soup or whatever it is. I don't even know what they call it. <laughs> anyway, that's not real food. <laughs> that's not good for you. You should be fixing real food as close to when God made it as you can find. Because you're adulterating, you're committing adultery when you eat stuff that is bad for you. Now, obviously, you know, your body is very adaptable and there's a lot of things you can eat. I don't want to see you starving yourself to death. But you should take care of that body that God has given you. Certainly, You should be taking care of the body of your children, which is a gift from God. You should be taking care of that. But you know what people are doing with their children? Not only are they feeding them junk food and garbage food. You know, I just recently put up something on autism. And they are curing autism by changing the diet of children. Just the diet of children. That's almost the only thing they do. They do a few other things, but we'll talk about that more when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. But what else are you putting in your mind and your body and your soul? We'll talk about that.
So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. There was a there was a Hollywood producer whose son, uh, young son, was having these brainstorms or seizures, and it was killing his son. And he went to all kinds of doctors and had lots of money to do that with, and he was getting no satisfaction from them. And he began to do research on his own and began to look up things and go and look up studies and read, you know, reports where doctors had, you know, some men in white coats had no solution. Other men in white coats said they found a solution and that solution was diet. You had to radically change the diet of the child. And he did that and the brain storms, the seizures, stopped when they didn't stay to the diet they started up again. Of course, a lot of damage had already been done to his son during this period. And he was just enraged by the fact that doctors don't read that literature. They don't study these alternatives that other doctors came up with, other men in white coats came up with. But they don't do it. Why? Because there is a pharmaceutical corporation somewhere saying, no, use this drug, no, use this drug. But who's going to say... Just change the diet of the child. Well, I mean, you know, is the grocery store going to lobby the doctors and say, you know, you really should be eating this, <laughs> this food, except for the fact that a lot of the foods you, you're not going to find in the grocery store. Uh, but, you know, maybe holistic food places. And of course there are now. There are, there are people who talk about these diets. Uh, people are, people are in four stage cancer. You can go online and see Individual after individual who are in stage four cancer, they're, they've got weeks to live. Some people have been on their deathbeds, couldn't raise their hand hardly. And their, their family said, we gotta do something, he's gonna die. And they, they wouldn't eat any more of the hospital food. All they did, the doctors had given up on them, all they did was bring in other foods and prepared foods and brought them to him and started him on these other diets of natural foods, whole foods, uncooked foods. And he got better. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to go raw or vegan or any of those things. But one of the most ancient of doctors said food is the best medicine. And personally, I believe almost all foods can become toxic. If you only eat those foods, I believe you should eat seasonally. And everybody's different. So everybody should be eating according to what is best for them. Well, how are you going to know that? Are you just going to study every single kind of diet? You're going to try every single kind of diet? In the case where somebody is dying of cancer, there isn't much time. There is a lot of information and there's a lot of things you can do. To alter your diet. And the truth is, maybe it's not, I'm not going to say it's going to cure the cancer, although there's evidence plenty of places. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, I haven't done all the research on it, who have gone from stage four cancer, going to die in a few weeks, to be completely cancer free for years and years and years and years. Until they finally, after seven years, they went off their diet for one month. And within 50 days, they were back in stage four cancer with only weeks to live again. They went back on the diet 
again, instead of going and getting the chemo and the radiation and all that stuff, they went back on the diet again, strictly following the dietary protocols that they had determined was good for them. And within six months, they were back in total remission, no sign of cancer whatsoever. But that's just coincidence, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> the individual I was thinking of, her name is Karen. You can probably look at her up. Uh, she's had interviews with Chris. So you use those words, Karen, Chris, cancer, diet. <laughs> You'll probably find it uh, on uh, YouTube, uh, her interviews. And what she, her husband booked a cruise. And while they were on the cruise, she went off her diet. And by the time they landed in New York, she was in, in full-blown stage four cancer again. And the only thing that had happened other than taking the cruise was a change in her diet. And when she changed back, she was again okay and now she's fine. And uh, now she had some particular problems with because of her genetics. She is she will probably never be able to eat some things that a lot of other people can eat. But a great deal of our problems are the direct result of our diet and our lifestyle. So, if you change your diet and your lifestyle, will you be saved? <laughs> and can you, do you have the will to change your diet and your lifestyle to be saved? The fact is, is salvation is spiritual. And almost every one of these people that you hear, and I've heard, you know, like I say, hundreds now over the years, almost every one of them who have changed their diet and had cancer or other problems go into total remission, claim a spiritual awakening for their change. Yes, the diet had an effect, but they almost all, to a man, claim a spiritual revelation that God was the answer. They turned to God. They said, you know, several of these people worked in hospitals. Some of them had, you know, total medical insurance, they could have gotten got any treatment whatsoever, but they chose to change their diet, change their lifestyle. And they said they made that choice because of what they felt God had the answer. Over and over again, you hear that theme. So there was a radical spiritual change in them as well. And I have no doubt, in my mind, can't prove it, have no doubt in my mind, That's the thing about faith. You're not supposed to prove faith. (laughs) The proof of the faith is what you do. But that it was the spiritual awakening or commitment or saying that, God, you're the answer. This spiritual thing we call God. Now, this is the interesting thing here, too. Lots of people talk about God. Uh, I remember another old movie. (laughs) What was it? Lady Hawk. Where the... The young uh, uh, star there who's in that, um, Matthew Broderick, I guess it is, or something, is saying, you know, I talk to God all the time, and he never mentions you. <laughs> so, you know, because the guy thought he was on a quest for God, and they, and he did Matthew didn't think that he was, because I talk to God all the time, and he didn't ever mention you. So, uh The reality is a lot of people talk about God, but it's not the same God. And if you go to Revelations 2.9, you'll see, I I know thy works, 
and tribulation and poverty. Uh, but then in parentheses it says, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And it, if you go to Revelations 3, verse 9, you see that was... Uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Now you go to chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So what's this Jew thing? Now, that word Jew there doesn't necessarily mean what we call Jew today. That that word was in, in the Greek is uh, idiodeus, which is actually means a Jewish citizen, a citizen of Judea. That's what they're talking about. They say they are citizens of Judea, but we know they're not because they said they had no king but Caesar. And the Christians had a king there is another king, one Jesus. That was their king. And King Jesus appointed the apostles the kingdom to be the ministers of the kingdom. Not to rule over the people, but to be the ministers of an actual government. Jesus was preaching one form of government that was different than the form of government that you would find in Rome at that time, that you would find in Corinth at that time, that you would find in Ephesus at that time, or almost any country in the Roman sphere of influence at that time. It was a different form of government. It was a government not dependent upon taxes, but upon charity. Not dependent upon force, but upon love. Not dependent upon contracts and covenants and oaths and allegiance, but on the perfect law of liberty. Well, how would such a government work? Well, Jesus knew. Moses knew. They said, well, you have to sit down. Jethro knew. He knew because this is not a new thing. It's an old thing. It goes back to pre-Nimrod. You have to sit down in groups of ten and then network those groups of ten together in groups of fifty in ranks of fifty and ranks of one hundred. They're not ruling over each other. They're not electing executive officers. At least not executive over people. Not executing commands over people. But they do execute commands over the dividing of the bread, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. And if they don't do a good job, you don't you don't give them any bread anymore. You give the bread to those who do do a good job. Because the reins of government are in your hands. But that's only going to work if God is in your heart. So unless the kingdom's in your heart, the system, that form of government, preached by Christ, John the Baptist, Moses, Abraham, is not going to work. It's not going to work because God is not in your heart and in your mind. What is in your heart and what is in your mind? 
what is in your heart and what is in your mind is false. It's not true. And why is it there? Because of vanity, pride, arrogance. Everybody's got a religion. You know, even the atheists got a religion. They believe in the God of no God. (laughs) That's their religion. They believe in the God of no God. They label themselves atheists. And uh, then there are other people who label label themselves Jew. And there's other people who label themselves Christians. And then the Christians have 40,000 different labels, you know, that were... One of the most common labels today is the non-denominational label. (laughs) I have no denomination. But these are labels. Now, it doesn't matter what label I stick on you. You know, I can put a label on you. You can put a label on yourself. What you are is what you are. The label doesn't change that. The label is the outside garment. You know, I mean... I mentioned to somebody the other day that Pythagoras was considered an Essene. Well, I want you to understand that Pythagoras never called himself an Essene because the label Essene, the Essenes didn't use. That's a label that somebody else pinned on people who had an Essene-type ideology at the time of Christ. They put that name on. They didn't call themselves Essene. But they had, so if you want to know who is really in a scene, you want to know, well, define a scene. What is in a scene? What, what do you mean when you say a scene? They have certain ideas. They, they didn't want to take oaths. Uh, they didn't eat certain foods. A lot of them were vegetarians, but not total vegetarians. They ate meat, but they ate meat occasionally. They used uh, the oils, the sacred oils that you see now, like uh, essential oils that different people put out. They they use those oils in healing and, and curing. And one of the things that was written about them is that they didn't put the oil on themselves. They would be purveyors of oils. They had oils that they carried with them. They had books they carried with them. They were big on studying and learning. But they were big on charity. So they, if they had oil... They would rather not use it on themselves. They would rather use it on somebody else. They would, they would use it for the poor, the needy. That some, they always were looking. Somebody else needed it more than them, and they wanted to distribute it to those who needed it more than them. It was part of their philosophy and character or ideology. So the more you look into what their philosophy and character and ideology was you begin to see a parallel with what Christ was. So anyway, they they reach back in history hundreds of years. You find their philosophy popping up here and there in Greek literature. And Pythagoras was very fond of their teachings. So you could say Pythagoras was an Essene because he had an ideology similar to that of the Essenes. Well, you could probably say the same thing about Polybius, but most people would count Polybius as a pagan. But, you know, what was John the Baptist teaching us? John the Baptist said, if you have two coats and your neighbor doesn't have any, you share. 
Because, and this is what he was, and you do the same in meats. And he's explaining this when somebody's asking how the kingdom of God works. He's preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. He's baptizing people into the kingdom of God. And they're saying, how does it work? Well, this is how it works. It works through charity. So what was the alternative to charity at that time? Well, the government was providing free bread. Rome was had free bread for its poor and circuses, entertainment. They had, uh, at different times, they had health care. At one time, they had universal health care. The same practices were brought into Judea, uh, partially with the Hasmoneans, but certainly with Herod the Great. He was setting that up and actually baptizing people into the kingdom of God. But his kingdom of God, you got registered and you had to pay in. There was force involved. Men actually collected your offering. They came by and told you, you owe this much because you produced this much. You made this much. And it was prescribed by law that you had to pay in to the treasury, which sometimes they call Corbin. And then that was divided up amongst the poor. And we know that poor were being neglected at that time. Because... And we know that the priests who ministered this for the government, because priests, it was a government position, who ministered this dividing of the bread, the dividing of the resources, whatever it was, from house to house, lived higher, the higher you were as a priest, you, you, your luxury and lifestyle was higher than many of the government officials. The quarters of the priests were more elaborate at that time than those of the king himself. Because you didn't have the choice of saying, I don't want to pay in to this guy. I don't think he's doing a good job. They just left the government to the government. And they paid the taxes they had to pay. And at first it worked out pretty good. But then the taxes, as there was abuse and corruption, the taxes rose and rose and rose And debt was actually increasing so that the people that you were indebted to could actually influence who was going to get elected to these positions. When Christ came in and cast out the money changers, he was firing the money changers who were the porters of the temple. And this was a power only the king had. Actually, the high priest had the power too, but nobody else but the king and the high priest. And of course, Christ was literally king and high priest. He, he was high priest because he was the older son, uh, not so son, but cousin to John the Baptist, who was a Levite. And so he could become literally high priest and king of a kingdom that wasn't in apostasy, that was actually going back to what Moses said and living by free will offerings instead of by forced offerings. Every, the the methods of Herod were taking them back into Egypt and making them bondage again. And so you go to a guy like Polybius, who is Greek, working for Romans, would be categorized as a pagan, living around 200 B.C. before Christ, 200 years before Christ. And he was actually deported to Rome. He was like a prisoner of of wars that took place in Rome. Uh, it took place in Macedonia, and then he was brought to Rome. He said, in his writings, 
the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of a rule of force and violence. The people, having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others, institute the rule of violence. Now, you talk about school shootings. You are bringing the spirit of violence into your society when you use government to force the contributions of the people. And that spirit of violence permeates the mind of your children. It isn't just the video games. It isn't just the drugs. But that's where the drugs and the video games and the movies are going to take your children because you have instituted the rule of violence in your system with your public education, with your social security, with your income tax, with all these systems where you look to men who exercise the authority one over the other to be the benefactors of your society. You're inviting in the spirit of force and violence and the rule of violence. And Polybius goes on to say, and now uniting their forces, in other words, bringing all these different programs, all these different practices, these covetous practices where you desire the benefits of your neighbor, together, under this one government, and and now that's going under one worldwide government, so that you're uniting their forces, massacre, banish, plunder, until they degenerate again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch. Whether he be Trump or Obama or Clinton, it doesn't really matter. The spirit of what you're doing is controlling the mind, the collective consciousness of the people. This will inevitably inevitably bring about not only an invasion of thought throughout society, but could actually even invite in enemies from abroad, from outside of your country. And, and it's already uh, growing uh, by leaps and bounds in the whole collective society of humanity. I mean, there's atrocities going on now. Thousands of people are being murdered and driven out of their homes and different places in the world. You hardly even hear about it on the news. The news is focusing on all kinds of other things. And, you know, I was listening to some of the people in the news media, and they are just propagandists. And they, they, they can look so neat, so clean, so intelligent, but they are spewing out a spirit with everything they say that is infesting your children and the minds of your children as 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 detrimentally as the parasites of the pigs of Canaan. Your children are being infested with these parasites. 
these mental parasites, these parasitical ideas and ideologies. And the masses continue with an appetite for benefits. Why are you eating such poor foods? Why do you go to the grocery store and buy these poor foods? You've been infested with a spirit that wants to poison you to death. It does not love you. It wants to kill you. And it's influencing your mind. All that can turn around. All that can change. The power of God and the power of His Spirit can alter that in the people around about you as well as in yourself. But you have to repent. Think a different way. Turn around and go a different way. And we're going to talk about that when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about uh, the lies that hide behind labels as sinners hide under white garments. And uh, so people want to look good and uh, they create an image of themselves. And we see that when they talk about forms of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And one of the powers thereof is that Jesus Christ preached a government. It was a government of and for and by the people. But it only works for people who have the character of Christ in their heart. To come together in the name of Christ. To come together with the character of Christ, which his character was one who came to serve. So, if you go to church to feel good, if you go to church to be comforted, if you go to church to... Uh, for fellowship, that's another thing people like to say. And I'm not saying fellowship is bad, but if you go to church to get fellowship, you, you're you not coming in the name of Christ. Because Christ didn't come here to get fellowship. That's not why he came here. He came here to serve. He says that. And so clearly he did. He came here to sacrifice himself so that he could pick up his life more abundant. These are the things that he came for. He says this. He came that you might be saved. So when you go to church, do you go to church so that other people might be saved? Or you just go to be saved yourself? Because if you go just to be saved yourself, you're not coming in the name of Christ. Why? Because you don't come because you love others as much as yourself. You just come because you love yourself and you want yourself to be saved. Now, I admit that you don't come to church because you hate yourself. (laughs) You come to church because you love yourself. But if that's the only reason you're coming to church, you have to come to church because you love others as much as you love yourself. Because that's the commandment. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. So you don't go to church so that you can feel good. You go to church so that you can be good and you go to church so you can help others be good and you really can't do that as a government of God unless you sit down in companies, small companies and network those company, companies together in ranks of 50 and 100. 
<laughs> because, and the reason why I say that is because Christ commanded it. So it must have been important. He commanded that his ministers make the people sit down in companies upon companies in ranks of 50 and ranks of 100. That's the word we see translated into ranks. Uh, and it actually appears twice, just like I'm saying it. Although, in the translations, they usually drop start dropping off certain repetitive uses of the word, which de-emphasizes it, so that people all over the world read the Bible and they never even notice that that is where Christ actually commanded his disciples to do something. Now, he gave direct statements about other things, but he didn't use that word commanded. And if you go to preparing you, you can look it up. You can, you can look it up in, in lots of other places. There it is in the original text that we have, the earliest text that we have. There it is. And it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's, it's, it's clearer in Mark than probably any of the others, but it, it, it's there. Before the loaves and fishes, before food would be distributed. Well, Moses had a problem with distribution as well. And I remember almost all these stories have, you know, they, they may be real stories, but they have their allegories too. Life is an allegory. It's trying to tell you something. The same as when I talk about lies hide behind labels. You know, the Jews were calling themselves Jews still in Judea, but they said they had no king but Caesar. So according to, you know, uh, John and James and others, they were not really Jews. They were Romans. <laughs> they, they, they had another king, not Jesus. But those who followed Jesus, got baptized, were cast out of the system of that they had created, which was an apostate system. And now they were in another system called Christianity, eventually would be called Christianity. At that time, they still called themselves Jews. And they said, those guys are not Jews because they've left the kingdom. And the Levites were now the ministers of the church. They were becoming the ministers of the church. Because he took the kingdom away from them. And now it's over here now. And we eventually, the, the, the ecclesia that Jesus called out started a new government that was the real Judea and the real citizens of Judea and actually the citizens of Israel because the kingdom was now united under Christ. And that's why when Christianity went up into the tribes to the north and to the east and the west and the south, many people accepted him. Because really, it's about the kingdom in your heart. Polybius saw many of the principles of the kingdom in his heart and in his mind and talked about them just hundreds of years before John the Baptist. And Pythagoras probably did the same. I'm not going to be quoting them. We don't need to. We have the Bible that tells us that we're not to be coveting our neighbor's goods. And that if we do, Peter tells us what's going to happen. We're going to become merchandise. We're going to become human resources. Proverbs tells us we're going to go under tribute because we're slothful in the way of Christ. Remember, that's what Christianity was called, the way. The way the the Jews went, who say they are Jews, but not really Jews, they went after the ways of Caesar. 
those forced offerings where people live at the uh, their their benefits were at the expense of others. Somebody on Facebook was saying, "Oh, it's okay to take the benefits of government. It's just getting some of your money back." No, it is not. You don't have any money in the coffers of the United States government or in Australia or anything. They've spent that all. They're operating on borrowed money. You know this. Every couple of years they run out and they raise the debt ceiling. You know they're operating on borrowed money. So if you take any benefits, you're taking from the future of your children and your grandchildren. Now I'm not saying don't take those benefits. I'm just telling you what it is. You don't have a solution. You can't fix that. They're not going to balance the budget. You can try to get them to do it and you can elect guys you think might do it. I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen. <laughs> just just an educated guess of an old historian. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But if you change your way of thinking, which is called repentance, and start thinking we have to start taking care of ourselves and actually start implementing that new way of thinking into actions by sitting down together and start taking care of one another, you can do that more efficiently, more effectively, and it will begin to reconnect the connections in your brain so that you can pick up signals from God. <laughs> it's like, you know, everybody walks around with these little walkie-talkies and they're they're like five watts. I think that's about the most you're supposed to be able to get. You You can't, you can't communicate very far with that. But now, you know, you can actually set up a deal, you know, and, and we've talked about doing it here in the Valley, at least some of the people, I don't have the expertise to do it, talked about setting up a kind of a repeater like they used to have with the old radio phones. And, uh, and you can use your cell phone to communicate in your Valley, even when the regular systems are out. And, uh, and each cell phone becomes kind of like a relay system. Uh, where you can relay messages around. It may, some of the, are a little more primitive, right, primitive in the electronic world, uh, and they, they can still use texting, even though the regular system is out, because it creates kind of its own system. Well, that's what the tens, fifties, and hundreds will do. When you start rewiring your brain and actually following the way that Christ said, coming to church for the According to the name of Christ, the character of Christ, the thinking of Christ. It begins to rewire your brain and the others it comes together, it will begin to rewire their brain and together you will begin to become that relay system. You will become the collective consciousness. But you actually have to become a doer of the word. In order to do that, you got to set down a lot of other garbage you're you're going to have to alter things. And, and back in, in Numbers 11, if you go back to Numbers 11, you, you there was a problem. The people were complaining. They didn't have meat to eat. You know, and they're whining and, and crying about that to Moses. And, and Moses says in verse 14, I'm not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. He can't be this central repeater. It's it's clogging up the airways. <laughs> Where he comes back and he explains all these things and does all these things and provide all these things. I can't do this. So it says, and uh, he says, and if thou deal thus with me, kill me. I pray thee. Out, out of hand. 
if if I found favor in thy sight and let me not see my wretchedness. Uh, so what's he talking about? In, in verse 16 he says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them into the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. So what is he talking about? Now, there's a lot lost in the translations, and we could go through this word by word, but we don't have a week (laughs) to do this. So, when they talk about officers, don't think of officers like you think of officers in the government. They're not exercising authority. Uh, It's a different word in the Hebrew. And there are different letters on these words in the Hebrew. And they don't really tell you in the translation. So you miss that. But it talks under the tabernacle of the congregation. So you're bringing them to the tents of the congregation. That's what tabernacle means. Tents. That's all it means. It's just the word for tents. And they're going to stand with you. And and he says that thou knowest to be elders of the people. And when he says offices, now remember the people are gathered together in these tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. You know, they're this is the way they're going to uh, eventually set things up completely. They already were somewhat organizing themselves in that way way back in Egypt, believe it or not. Because, but what they the the thing with Jethro is he was helping them deal with judicial issues, using that same pattern to deal with judicial issues. And of course, the Levites were your appeals court. That's why they had set up the cities of refuge. It wasn't every, all the criminals go to the city of refuge and live there. It's that you appeal up there, and if they see you and accept you and give you coverture, and then you can actually go back to your own home as long as that coverture holds. And they, if anybody were to kill you, they would, that would be considered murder. Because they overruled the local courts that said you were guilty. Because you didn't get a fair trial. That's, that's the basis on it. Now unfortunately, some of the Levites began to take bribes and guys got away with, maybe literally with murder. Because they would issue this, you know, uh, absolution, so to speak, reprieve, that you were found innocent in the appeals courts, the cities of refuge. You have to understand these words cities and everything to understand what's going on. It's all very practical. It all makes sense because local emotions can go and a guy can get convicted and he's not really guilty according to, you know, the needing and having witnesses and all this kind of stuff. And so they would rather see a guilty man go free than an innocent man be punished for something he did not do. Because that, that's really bad. It happens all the time, but it's really bad. But anyway, so this was all about how a government operates in a free will system. Now, if you think he's still guilty, you can't kill him, but you can still shun him. You can still tell the Levites that uh, this guy's a jerk. And all the all your friends can stop doing business with him. And his he can be completely isolated while he's still in the city, in, in the in the community. 
This is why you had people stoned up against the wall and people stoned at the gates. This is, they're not actually throwing rocks at them. They're telling the Levites, this guy is an outlaw. This guy is a bad guy. Now you can't go actually murder him because he's got a reprieve from the appeals court, but you can shun him. You cannot do business at his store. You can, uh, you know, not have your kids play with his kids, whatever, or marry his kids because everybody knows everything has come out into the public. Aye. So judgment remains with the people. Uh, the punishment, uh, cannot be overt once he's been reprieved. But you still could have done, and so also if you found Levites picking men who were clearly taking bribes, you could not, you just don't pick, you stop supporting them. And you'd amazed how that would affect those upper courts. So they could have solved that problem of corruption without picking a king. But being slothful in the ways of the kingdom, they picked a king instead. And of course, that was a rejection of God. And of course, you've gone way beyond that. You have presidents and prime ministers and Sanhedrins and everything else. The Sanhedrin as a legislative body did not exist. That's not why these 70 men were picked. They didn't exist as a legislative body until Queen Salome, uh, just a few years before uh, John the Baptist, well, relatively few years in history before John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Then the Sanhedrin became a legislature who was going to decide good and evil. You have to decide what is good and evil, but you have to depend upon the grace of God, upon God writing upon your heart and your mind. But right now, you got all kinds of doctrines writing upon your heart and your mind that are made up by men. They're just not true. So how do we expose the false church system? You need to understand that the church was the called out to serve the people in a form of government that did not exercise authority one over the other, but operated through the perfect law of liberty by faith, hope, and charity. And that word charity is the word love. So you had to start caring about one another. And that's why you gathered together so that you could actually physically implement that caring into giving of bread and rightly dividing that bread from house to house. So that nobody, and that care from house to house, so that nobody had to go to men, the benefactors who exercise authority one over the other. That's a, You're a long ways away from that. But if you're not gathering to find out how to do that, you're not coming together in the name of Christ. If you're just going to church because it feels good, it makes you feel good, it makes you, gives you comfort, then you're not going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive emotional spirit. You're going to receive emotional feelings. But you're not going to receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit by itself should be your comforter. Not your congregation. Not your minister. Not your church. Not your big screen TV. Not your band. Not the light show. Not the soft-spoken minister who gets up there and tells you what you want to hear. Tickles your ears and makes you feel comfortable. That is not going to church. That is actually going away from church. It's going away from the ecclesia that is supposed to be helping you provide love for one another. Care for one another. 
feeding one another through the Eucharist of Christ, through thanksgiving. But no, you want to belong to this church. You want to belong to that church. You want to be a Messianic Jew. You want to have this calendar. You want to have, uh, you know, say the right word, you know, Yeshua. G- uh, and these things give you comfort because you know something they don't know. You have a religion that is better than their religion. You have an ideology that is better than it is childishness. Now, why are you being so childish and thinking, you know, Israel used a lunar calendar, a solar calendar, and a celestial calendar. They used them for different things. One for navigation, one for figuring the feast, you know, like I say, so that your feast ends up on a full moon, so that you have a night light (laughs) when you're all gathered together, and so that everybody knows, and you look up in the sky, and they know about what time it is. But they used a, a solar calendar for planting. And they used all these things because they have uses. Babylon used all those things. Babylon's official calendar was lunar. People talk, talk about their, oh, people use the, the Roman calendar. And so what time is it in Babylon? Well, Babylon used a lunar calendar. <laughs> they, didn't use, they didn't use the Roman calendar. I mean, there are problems with the Roman calendar, too, because they always had to have the holidays in there. And so they would take steal a day out of this month and a day out of that month. But, you know, we made improvements on it. So, that, But it's a mix. It's a mix of lunar and solar calendar. And occasionally now we, we make some corrections based on the celestial calendars. If you really want to know what time it is, you've got to have God writing on your heart and your mind. Stop creating these labels. We use this calendar, so we're better than you. We we use these words, these special words for Yeshua, Yadevahe, Yahweh, and you don't. So we're better. We do the Sabbath. We're in debt up to our ears. Our children are debt. We're using benefits that are driving our children farther and farther in debt. But we're Sabbath keepers. No, you're not. If you're in debt, you're not a Sabbath keeper because you didn't work first and then earn your rest. You went into debt to get your rest now and now your children are going to have to pay it off. So you're not a Sabbath keeper. It's not about a day. It's about a way. It's always been about a way. Polybius understood that. Pythagoras understood that. Probably uh, (laughs) a lot of people understood that or at least began to understand that. And how did they understand that? Because God was writing on their hearts and their mind because they were willing to see that some things are just inherently wrong. It's not good to eat this. It's not good to accept this. This is not right. How do I know that? And so why are people acting like children about their religion? You know, that my religion, I wear the right clothes. My wife has a doily on her head. Uh, all these kinds of things. Now, obviously, kids should be modest to some degree. Uh, in their wardrobe, and I don't have any objection to people, you know, setting dress codes within their families and everything. But what is really the label of Christ is found within the hearts and minds of people. Is Christ really acting in their life? Why do we go revert back to these denominational, divisionary rules and regulations that have nothing to do with morality of God or Christ or the way of Christ. It's because we are children. We are not grown up in the Holy Spirit. 
we were traumatized by by religion, by public school, by our neighbors, by our parents. We were trauma. We may be traumatized by the food we eat. These these shooters are all affected by the fact that they're almost all on these what is it SSR drugs, these psychotropic drugs. Almost every single one of them, and maybe every single one of them. Like I say, they seal the records. You don't know. They are being traumatized in their brains by these drugs. Now, before they were traumatized by the that in the in their brain by an actual chemical drug, they were traumatized by a spirit of selfishness, a spirit of of wanting benefits at the expense of others, that rule of force and violence. So that you get guys who think they're Christians, they say, yeah, well, we can still take the benefit because we're just getting back the money they took from us. They don't, they lack forgiveness. They lack understanding. They remain in their trauma and they remain children. They cannot grow and mature in the Christian spirit that Christ came to give us until they realize, no, we have to turn around, think a different way. And go a different way. I just point out the fact that the money is gone. You're not getting benefits from the money you put in. You're getting money from your children and grandchildren. And your neighbor's children and grandchildren. Who you're supposed to be loving as much as your own. Because I've actually heard people say. Well I don't have any kids or grandchildren. (laughs) But you're supposed to love. If you did have them. You're supposed to love them. Your neighbor's kids the same. You, but you're dividing. You don't even love the guy in the other religion as much as you love your religion. Anybody who is dividing themselves based on religions and ideologies instead of what is... What are we supposed to be seeking? The kingdom of God and his ideology. <laughs> no, uh, the kingdom of God and his religion. Uh, no, the kingdom of God and his vocabulary. Oh, the kingdom of God and his calendar. That's what we're supposed to be, right? No. Come on. You know what it is. Righteousness. What's righteousness? You think righteousness is using a certain word? No. Righteousness is a way. It's a way you live together as a people. So anyway, we, you know, I could go into a lot of other things uh, so that we could see this. But I, I want to get over into a thing called paganism. You know, because that's that's a label. Paganism is a label. And so what is paganism? Paganism is a, a term first used in the 4th century. So that's how late it is. So we always think those people are calling themselves pagans. But this is a term used in the 4th century by early Christianity for populations of the Roman Empire who practice polytheism. Now, this I'm reading this definition. Either because... Uh, they were increasingly rural and provincial relative to the Christian population or because they were not soldiers of Christ. And uh, so an alternative terms in Christian texts for the same group was Hellenism or Gentiles. Now, the word Gentiles is actually ethnos. I mean, most of the time you see the word Gentile, that they're translating it from the word ethnos. They're not consistent, but most of the time it's ethnos. And ethnos simply means other nations. To the Jews, the Romans were Gentiles, but to the Romans, the Jews were Gentiles. Because 
they were the other nation. <laughs> so, you have to kind of understand that. Because, remember, Christ is preaching a kingdom. If you have the same kingdom, you are the same nation. No more Greek. No more Roman. You're Christian. That's a nation. But most of you are just in a, some sort of mental state that you think is Christianity. And you're not actually the government of God, the kingdom of God, which is at hand now within your reach. We'll talk about that when we come back. So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, this idea of paganism is really whatever the Romans were doing that the Christians were not doing. <laughs> that, that They talk about polytheism, but, you know, one of the, that's one of those labels again. Uh, poly, many, theism, gods. Well, really, the, a lot of these ancient cultures had these multiple characters that they talked about as if they were God. And what they're really representing is characteristics of the God. And they personified these characteristics, that, you know, like courage. So they had a God of courage. And they had another God of, of charity and kindness. And a God of forgiveness. And, you know. And then, of course, all these things over generations get distorted and then they have a god of wine and so we're going to all have an orgy together. <laughs> you know? But in the successful societies, you know, like if you went to the Teutons, they had this, but they had no orgies. Uh, they they had no alcoholism. They did have kind of a harvest festival that maybe get a little rowdy at times, but, um, you know... Uh, uh, they almost didn't have divorce. I mean, it was almost, you couldn't find it hardly. They had no orphans uh, whatsoever. I mean, people would die and leave their kids behind, but somebody would adopt those kids because they valued those children. So they didn't have, you know, in Rome, you had, you know, like crowds of orphans running around. They became a real problem in the streets because they'd be robbing and begging and, and everything else. And... Uh, but you didn't have that amongst the Teutons. You know, that if if somebody was cheating, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, committing adultery with your wife, you may not live to the second time if you get caught. I mean, that one of the penalties was to tie you up and throw you in a bog. And who would do that? A bunch of your friends from your congregation <laughs> would get that guy. If he's caught messing with your wife, they would tie you up and throw you into bog. If you could get untied before you sunk into the bog, you might live. But you won't try that again. <laughs> so anyway, so they had a certain morality built in that was more effective than what you found in Rome. So it was, and Rome had lots of gods too. So what was the difference? The poly, you know, uh, representation of God that you know where you had these different characters representing God or was it there were another factor that was affecting the morality of society well there was no socialism 
in amongst the Teutons. They had, they had it where they would give sacrifice to their priests and their priests would see to the needs of people in their community. And a lot of times they would come and they would say, well, so-and-so is having a hard time of it and they're short of food and everything. And other guys would bring by food. Sometimes they would give it to the priest and the priest would make sure it got to them. But they would let the priest know so that we knew, well, he's not just hoarding this away when there's a shortage. So they were, they had this system of communication through the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands to make sure that when there was a need, what was provided to fill that need was properly distributed. And it was a very successful society. It was able to destroy the Roman Empire's uh, uh, military legions when they came up to try to conquer them. And when they strayed from that and started becoming the centralized power, then they got into trouble. Now, societies are as moral as the people are. Are moral, but you have to practice that morality, and that morality is really about that loving one another. And this was why the early church was persecuted uh, because of the fact that they, their religion, they understood that pure religion was taking care of the needy of their society through the ministers and through these networks of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, because they all organized that way. All the early church was organized that way. Constancy. Constantine's church did not really do that as much. And certainly when Constantine's church got around to 1066, they weren't doing it hardly at all. There was a few movements in the 1400s and 1500s that tried to take people back in that direction. And there was that knowledge around. But they they became more and more centralized. And as Polybius says, the masses continue with an appetite for benefits, including the benefit of law which is the weightier matters, uh, the benefit of protection, which is the weightier matters that Christ talks about, the appetite for benefits at the by the rule of force and violence at the expense of others, they massacre and, and banish and plunder that liberty until they degenerate into having another master and a monarch, which is why there was a rise of kings. And then with, with that rise of kings, they went out and killed millions upon millions upon millions of real Christians at, and, and called them heretics. Burned them at stakes, drove them out of their homes, took their property away because they were able to amass these armies. And so now you wake up, if you are waking up, and begin to understand that Christ preached a way to govern yourselves that leads to liberty under God. Christians learned that. Rome fell. They survived and thrived during the fall of the Roman Empire. If the Roman Empire fell again today, if the world, New World Order fell again today, most of you would die in the process because you're not seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Herman Melville wrote, I'll try a pagan friend, thought I. Since Christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy. You go to church, you love each other, you say you love each other, but 90% of the welfare that's received by the Christians in your church comes from men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. 90% of the Christians in your church are that are receiving any kind of welfare, social security, free education, any of those things are receiving them at the expense of others 
and literally by cursing your children and grandchildren with the debt to pay it back because you're all operating on borrowed money. That is completely the opposite direction of Christianity. It is not the way of Christianity. It is the opposite of Christianity. It is poisoning the minds of your children. You've already been poisoned in your mind because you accept this as okay. Even though Christ said, Moses said, Abraham said, it's not okay. You're not to covet your neighbor's goods. Not even one little buckle of your neighbor's goods. You don't want any of that. You want to do this in righteousness. That's what you're supposed to be seeking. You're taking care of one another by charity, real charity, not government. Government doesn't give charity. It gives you what it took away from somebody else. This is the antithesis of Christ. So now you want to know where the beast is? The Antichrist? It is you. If you follow the ways of the Antichrist, you you become fit for the Antichrist. To rule over you. To control you. To give you a number so you can have all these benefits. You set this up. Now, you can repent, and and I hope you do, and begin to seek the ways of righteousness of Christ, and do what Christ commanded. Sit down in the tens, in the fifties, in the hundreds, and begin to learn what it means to care for one another. Do this now while the system is still semi-functioning in debt, driving you farther and farther down into the abyss and the pit. But if you start learning it now, God will pull you up. It will take a miracle, but I believe in miracles. But if you will not turn around and head back to your father's house, not for the intention of being comforted and cared for, but the for, with the intention of caring for others and in, in the way of Christ, then then you won't be a pagan. <laughs> You'll be, you'll be an actual Christian. Not, not what is posing as Christianity has the label of Christianity today, which is actually pagan. Now people talk about the holidays. You know, Christmas, it's actually a pagan holiday. So this is another badge. This is another little label we're gonna put. We don't celebrate Christmas because that's a pagan holiday. We don't have a Christmas tree because that's a pagan holiday. We don't celebrate Easter because that's Esther. Well, yeah, that's where it came from. And certainly, it does have these pagan origins. But really, what makes it contrary to Christ? It isn't the tree. It isn't the chocolate Easter bunny. <laughs> Which is probably not good for you to eat, because it's got way too much sugar in it. It isn't fruitcake. It, it's not the fruitcake under the tree. It's the fruitcakes gathering around the tree thinking that they love Jesus while they're doing the opposite of what Jesus said. It's the fake Christians who are really more pagan. It isn't the symbols of that. We don't, you know, that's one thing I've always said. You know, people say, well, that symbol is a symbol of the devil, you know, and, you know, maybe it's a triangle or the five pointed star and everything. What? On earth are you doing relinquishing geometric shapes to the dominion of the devil? Yeah, the devil uses it. You don't give it up. You, If you are really walking with Christ, you should be able to walk right into the center of a pentagon and all the demons flee. It, that They don't have dominion over anything except where you relinquish power to them. And when you relinquish power to labels, 
You are relinquishing power to Satan. The power is in the spirit of righteousness, which comes from God, must be written on your heart. Stop using these labels to divide one another. Start seeing, letting Christ in. And again, the way you do that, Christ told you, forgive. We're not at enmity with the state or with governments of the world or with the Chinese or even with, uh, what is it? I can't even remember his name. The head of North Korea. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Or his sister, which everybody made a big deal about. And, you know, where some CNN is saying what a wonderful person she is and everything. I mean, that, that leader, if if he gets mad at you, he literally may throw you to dogs to be eaten alive <laughs> in an arena. I mean, this guy is wacko, wacko, wacko. And, uh, you know, I don't know anything about his sister, but she's the head of, what is it, the Ministry of Propaganda or something like that. And, and uh, you know, she's part of that. Now, hopefully, I hope they repent. Uh, I hope they change. Uh, I hope they see the light. I've always had this feeling that someday even Bill Clinton will repent and see the light. I've seen signs of the fact that he... I mean, I believe that Caiaphas became a Christian. But I'm... You don't have to worry about that. I'm not I'm not preaching that as gospel. I just... There are reasons to believe that Caiaphas, because of what Christ said, how he talked to him, and because of other historical things that we found uh, since, there's evidence that Caiaphas repented and became a Christian. The guy who condemned Christ. That's... I mean, if... if if God can uh, accept him, he can accept you. But as long as you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, in other words, refuse to let the Holy Spirit into your heart and your mind and write upon your heart and your mind and follow that Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. You must let the Holy Spirit in. What's keeping it out? Your pride, your vanity, your trauma. My religion's better than your religion. That's keeping the Holy Spirit out. Oh, you guys are... I can't talk to you guys because you use the wrong calendar. You know. And you start rationalizing all kinds of things. Oh, we don't have to... We don't have to tithe anything to the poor because we don't produce any animal byproducts. (laughs) You know, animal products are agricultural products. And tithing is only agricultural products. You can rationalize all these things. It is a selfish way to live. And, yeah, you say, well, I give charity. I help out people here and there when I come across them. That's not kingdom. That's not what Christ said. You you can't even get loaves and fishes till you sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And Because you can't, you don't get any grace. What grace have you if you only love those who love you? If you only love those around you? It's not kingdom. It's congregationalism. And there are congregations in the kingdom, but in order for it to be a kingdom, you have to sit down in ranks of 50 and 100 to the tune of 5,000, 50,000, 500,000, 5 million, 500 million. Can you imagine if you had 500 million Christians actually networking together in the world today? You would see such a shining example of righteousness. We'd all be being persecuted by the time we got there. When we actually really start gathering that way, we better do it quick. Because nothing is more threatening 
to an empire or a new world order than people gathering together in love in tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. That is, that is scary. And, you know, in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, that's what Gibbons writes, is that the emperors feared the union and discipline of Christians. What was that? That was them sitting down in the fifties, tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, taking care of one another on a daily ministration, the needy of their society. You know, I, I mentioned we have articles up on autism. They're curing autism with diet. They they sometimes they'll use a, a, a few methods of e- uh, chelation where they're getting some of the heavy metals out of the system of the child. But children who are in a serious autistic stage, no new vocabulary, have less vocabulary at three than they had at one, are being cured so that they're going on to high school and college with no evidence whatsoever of autism. Completely cured. How is that possible? And it's very important that you do it as early as possible. Almost all these people attribute the autism to vaccinations. And, and with good reasons, the more you look into that, the more you'll see that because you're, you're putting heavy metals in the child with that, as well as attacking their immune system and throwing. So the body will heal itself and go back. And, and you can, you can overcome all sorts of behavioral problems, uh, physical disabilities, uh, by changing your diet, but the diet cannot Simply be different food. It has to be including a mental and spiritual diet. You have to let the Holy Spirit in. You have to mature in that spirit. You have to still your mind and let God in. Set down. Humility is a, has a tremendous stilling effect to the mind. Stop trying to justify yourself. Stop trying to comfort yourself with your labels of religion and philosophies and ideologies and start actually becoming a simple, humble doer of the word. Start, and one of the things you have to do that start forgiving everybody who is wronging you today that's going to wrong you tomorrow that wronged you yesterday. Start letting that go. You don't have to make a big show out of it, but you have to start considering. If if you the memory of something upsets you, you need to look at that. <laughs> you need to. It's a kind of a joke around here. You better look at that because those are things. Those things that are in you, and that's what meditation is about. We have a page up on meditation. We have a page up on paganism, and eventually, uh, I don't know, it doesn't have it yet, but eventually we'll have a a recording up there. And just start contemplating these things. I'm not trying to... I don't want my voice in your head. I want the Holy Spirit's voice in your head. (laughs) And it shouldn't be a voice. It probably won't be a voice. It will be a drawing of your heart in a particular... You'll be drawn towards forgiveness. You will be drawn towards service. You will be drawn towards generosity. You will also be drawn towards occasionally to rebuke people who are doing something wrong. You're going to say, you know, that's not right. And they'll they'll get all upset and they'll scream at you and everything and you'll be perfectly calm. I mean, you should be. If you're not, better look at that. <laughs> so, you know, you'll be calm in the face of these. 
the fact that the world economy is headed for disaster or whatever, that's not going to frighten you. You're, because your peace doesn't come from what you know about the world. It comes from what you know about God. And what you know about God is not vocabulary. It's not put down in letters. It's not put down on ledgers. It's not written out in rules and regulations. It's written on your heart, on your spirit, and in your mind. And you are at peace with the world and with the flesh and with the devil. You're at peace with them because you don't need to battle them. God will battle them. Now, he may battle them through you. You'll become an instrument of him. But it's not your willfulness that's battling them. You don't want to be battling Satan with your willfulness. You're going to lose that. You you want to say, after you, Lord. <laughs> you know, uh, God will give you the power to stand against that wickedness in high places. But he will only do that mostly because of what you are willing to do in little places. With your children, are you working on their diet? Are you working on their spiritual diet? And that doesn't mean going to church and sitting there for an hour and a half, listening to somebody spiel out and tickle the ears of everybody else. You have to really get down. In order for you to help your children, you need to look into your own hearts. And, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of fathers and even some mothers that have children living with somebody else because they were unfit, unwilling, undesirous of taking care of those children and being a father or mother to them. Or they were not willing to make the compromises in their vanity, not compromises in morality, but compromises in their vanity to make their marriage work. And maybe that's all water under the bridge now, but Those are things that you're dragging into your future if you will not take a look at your past. But you need to take a look at your past with forgiveness and patience and realize you're sinners, we're all sinners. Stop making excuses. Start seeing the truth. Asking God to show you the truth about yourself. Why you made these mistakes. Why you weren't an overcomer 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And start admitting that. And now, implement what you discover in your day-to-day relations with everybody around you. I mean, some of the people you need to forgive, they're they're dead and gone. You can't go back to them and say, you know, I'm sorry I did this to you. I'm forgiving you. I I would like you to forgive me for the wrongs I've done you. Because they're gone. But you're doing the same thing over and over again because you're dragging the past into the present, which will haunt you in the future if you do not face these things now. So anyway, we're going to take a look at other things. Uh, You know, I had a number of quotes on my uh, page on paganism. The need for connection and community is primal, as fundamental as the need for air, water, and food. So yes, fellowship is important. But you need to have Christ present in that fellowship. You need to have His Spirit there. Not the spirit of self-satisfaction. Not the spirit of self-comfort. 
but the spirit of righteousness. So, uh, James Corbett said, individuals can resist injustice, but only a community can do justice. And Christ, of course, knew this, and that's why he, uh, he, uh, told us to sit down together. Uh, people are hungry. People are needy, not just for food and good food, <laughs> hopefully, but they're, they're needy for spiritual food. When he says, feed my sheep, that was a command to his, his disciples, his ecclesia, his called out ministers, but they can't do it unless you have the spirit in you to feed one another, to care for one another, to provide for one another. And so, you, you know, I'm not asking you to send funds to me to help us do this work. I'm asking you to sit down and start caring for 10 that are connected in ranks of 50 and 100. And I'm not only asking that, I was commanded to make you do that. If you won't do that, I I have to keep pointing it out that Christ said, make them do it. So until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.